So yesterday, uh, as it was snowing, um, the snow was coming down in those big fluffy flakes, like, like cartoon snow. It's so beautiful. I don't like being out in the snow at all, but I do really enjoy looking at it from inside my house with the coffee. Then snow is fantastic. And I like looking out in my backyard because it al I always think it looks like Narnia. And the way that the snow lands on the trees and sits on my shed and sits on the wood. I'm like, this just looks like Narnia. And uh, if you're familiar with, with Narnia, the, the great uh, writer C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this fiction, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's this, uh, there's this clever line by Mr. Beaver who describes the condition of Narnia in the wintertime under the power of the White Witch as always winter, never Christmas. And uh, when the snow in Narnia melts, it's this allegory this great allegory for winter in our hearts giving way to the springtime of faith. Um, and he does this because Lewis, before he came to faith in Christ, he was a, a tremendous academic, philosophic writer, thinker, um, and, 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 and an, an atheist. And before he came to faith, he, uh, he recognized that it, there was like a winter in his soul that was warmed by the message of God's grace. And so he carried that allegory of the melting uh, into uh, his writing, and he extended this metaphor into, uh, into Narnia. And so this snow melts when Aslan is on the move. And Aslan, of course, is this great lion, the allegory of Christ, who uh, Mr. Beaver again described as good, but not tame. And so um, the historical account of this first Christmas that we celebrate these four weeks leading up to Christmas, the Christmas story is good, but it's not tame. And when you really look at it, you see that it's, it's this babe in a manger. It's not sentimental. Uh, it's a sign, a powerful sign, a provoking sign, a sign that says that all of humanity is plagued by darkness and as try as we may, we're powerless to eradicate and save ourselves uh, from this darkness because the darkness is inside us. And so um, the God who transcends us. He humiliated himself and he came to us to rescue us from this darkness that is inside us. Frederick uh, Buchner, who's a writer and theologian, he describes the Advent season like this. Advent is like the hush in a theater before the curtain rises. It's like the hazy ring around the winter moon that means the coming of snow, which will turn the night to silver. Soon, but for the time being, our time, darkness is where we are. Our text this morning is from Isaiah chapter 52. I'm going to start reading in verse 13, and then I'm going to read all of chapter 53. This takes place 700 years before the birth of Christ, but theologians, uh, many of them refer to this as the fifth gospel because there is striking clarity in this text, striking clarity that Christ would come and uh, that, he, that this king uh, who would come in a manger would be crucified on a cross. Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, 
like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was, and, uh, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered... He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. Now, it is absolutely impossible that ancient authors, thank you, that ancient authors could write something spanning multiple uh, generations, centuries, multiple genres of writing, and then throw them like a Hail Mary pass into the future, hoping that somebody else would pick up their literary narrative, and then they would write their portion of the story, and they would hurl their literature through, throughout centuries, hoping that somebody else would pick it up. It's impossible. Hoping that in 33 AD, somehow Rome would be like, hey, have you guys read Isaiah's scroll? Come here. Read this. No, no, scroll down. Scroll, scroll down, scroll down. <laughs> further, further. More, more, scroll. Look right there. We should totally do that. You, if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, here's what I would encourage you and provoke you to consider. That the Bible was not some collocation of literature that was randomly thrown forward into, for millennia in the hopes that these, this collocation of stories would somehow converge. No, it's 40 authors, 66 books, telling one story. The one story is an epic that God has come to save us. That he came that first Christmas day. That the king in the manger would be that king on the cross. What this demonstrates when we consider this text this morning that was written 700 years before the first Christmas day. That if you noticed as you're reading through it, speaks about the crucifixion, the death and resurrection with ridiculous clarity. What this teaches us is that there's a dual authorship of the scripture. Which is why we consider the scripture infallible and inerrant. 
right? There's human authors, and of course they're all deeply flawed, and we know that. But the Word of God is not deeply flawed because the Holy Spirit is the second author, superintending all of the narratives, bringing them together with tremendous perfection. We're going to unwrap this prophecy this morning. We're going to unwrap three astonishing truths, and here they are. This king would come with a confronting arrival, a liberating mission, and eternal rule. So first, this confronting arrival. When you look at verse 14, there's a striking descriptor there. It says he'd be high and lifted up, marred beyond description. And if you've been in church for a while, you'll remember that in John chapter 12, Jesus said, if I'm high and lifted up, I'll draw men to me. This imagery of him being high and lifted up on the cross, we see this year 700 years before it happens. And what this prophecy reveals, what these verses give us, is that, you know, number one, Christ would be crucified, but number two, why he had to be crucified And that actually confronts us. See, before Christmas is something worth celebrating, before Christmas is something, uh, uh, a message that is liberating, it's actually confronting. It's confronting because culturally when we think about sin, we rank it. Even if you've been in church for a while, we, we tend to rank it. Right? We rank it in terms of how intensive we think it is. This person had an affair. This person has a problem with gossip. Which is worse? We rank it. This person calls on the name of Christ, has been baptized and professed Christ, but they live in constant worry, constantly worrying, because they don't live a life of worship. So they're constantly worrying, and the way they deal with their worry is they don't come and gather and gun with God's people and throw their lives at God, oh God, help me. In my... They don't turn to God. The way they deal with their worry is they just take a good stiff drink. Right? That's how they deal with it. They just calm their nerves. They have some sort of a substance. So this person worries. This person over here, they don't struggle with worry. They're looking at pornography, which is worse. We rank it. This person comes to church, and they're so self-righteous. They're just better than everybody. They just wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and they're just like, wow, I'm I'm better than everyone. And then they come to church. Self-righteous. But then there's this other person that's self-absorbed. They don't think they're better than anyone. They don't have five minutes for anyone. They come here on Sunday. They don't care. But the people, they don't care. They're self-absorbed. Me, my life. My, me and my singleness and my ability to flow and go and do my thing. Self-absorbed. I don't care about these people in here. Just talk about grace. Tell me I'm justified. Let me go. The end. Me, my wife, my kids. Us. This. Fortress of solitude. Idolatrous walls of comfort. Nobody come in. I don't want to know your name. Which is worse? The self-righteous or the self-absorbed? See, we rank it. But Christmas, this king that comes, it's confronting. Because the king on the cross, he didn't die for some of us, he died for all of us. And that means the problem with sin is not how intensive it shows up for you versus how intensive I think it shows up for me. The problem with sin is that it's extensive and it's tainted you and it's tainted me. And so this king had to come and confront not the intensity of the sin of some, but the extensivity of the sin of everyone. 
And so none of us get to escape that. And so if you're here this morning and you're considering Christian faith and you are exploring and you're like wanting to know who is this Jesus and what is going on, here's, what, here's one thing that might be helpful for you to understand at this point in the sermon. You see, the difference between me and you before God is me as a believer and you this morning here, if you consider yourself saying, you know, I'm not a believer, I'm thinking about it. Okay, the difference between you and me is not my goodness, it's God's grace. The difference between you and me standing next to each other and God looking down on you and God looking down on me is not that God looks down and goes, Paul's good. It's that God looks down and goes, Paul's forgiven. I have received, I've believed and received forgiveness for my sin. And today, you can believe and receive forgiveness for yours. For the same. The king confronts us. This is not an intensive problem that shows up for some people. It's extensive and it affects absolutely all people. And so what, we, what we're given next is this verse that explains that Jesus is the king of kings. Look at verse 15. There's this word that describes what he would do. It says he would sprinkle the nations. This is a graphic image, actually, of the sprinkling of blood. It's a blood splatter. It's kind of the, the whole entire Old Testament is rated R. And the New Testament is also rated R because it's very graphic. This is him sprinkling the nation. And you know, blood stains. But amazingly, this blood removes stains. Jesus would come and sprinkle the nation. Historically speaking, many, form, many churches over the last 2,000 years of church history, their baptism would be through sprinkling. And it was a form and a way, a faithful way, form of depicting the sprinkling of the na- Christ's blood washing us clean. And so the water uh, would, would, would be given that same sprinkling kind of uh, imagery. It says in verse 15 that he shuts the mouths of kings. And the implications of this is that he has the highest wisdom. His law supersedes our law. His views supersede ours. He, his, uh, his ways are higher than our ways. Dr. Warren Gage was my professor of Old Testament history at Knox. And he showed us this image in a lecture one time. And it was of a hieroglyphic of a number of kings down on one knee cupping their mouths. And this was a common, uh, a common image of kings cupping their mouths while one king stood. And it was a way of saying, this is the great king, these are the lesser kings, and you have the floor. None of us have anything to say. If you're in the room, none of us are speaking because your wisdom is supreme. Christ's arrival, it's confronting. But, but when Christ, I'll explain this way, when Christ summarized his law, what is the law of this great king? When he summarized the law in Matthew 22, he said, the entire law can be summarized by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second law, which is like it, is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. Love God with, that, with your whole being and love all the people around you as much as you love yourself. And then you've kept God's law. So that shuts all of our mouths because, of course, none of us are doing that. We have moments when we love people, then we don't. We care about others, then we don't. We're selfless, but then we're selfish. We're a paradox. We're a mixed bag. And so the law, it shuts our mouths. It shuts all of our mouths. Paul is, uh, is, uh, the Apostle Paul is a law expert in Romans chapter 3. He taught, of course, that God's law has a zero tolerance for error. And it's not because God's a cosmic perfectionist with the ruler 
you didn't keep my law. It's because God himself by nature is love. It's a, he is a God of love. He spun the cosmos forward from love. His law is a law of love, but we are not people of love. And because he is holy and perfect, and he's not a cosmic schmo who's kind of has like this divine standard of meh, because that's not God and he's holy, which only makes sense, right? You have standards, don't you? When you go into a public bathroom in a park, you don't walk in and go, my, 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 how lovely. None of you do that because you have standards. And so that's why God's law has a zero tolerance, because his standard is let's all be perfectly loving, and it shuts all of our mouths. This king comes and he's confronting a king means a kingdom. He left heaven's realm and he entered our realm. Right? And if he comes, if Christ is the king, that means Herod's not the king. If Christ is the king, that means, if Christ is Lord, that means Caesar's not Lord. Right? All throughout the Roman Empire, what did they say? Kairos at Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. And then all of a sudden, these Christians are going around saying, not Kairos at Curios. They're all saying Christos at Curios. No, Jesus is Lord. Christ is Lord. It's confronting. But here's the good news. This king does not confront us to condemn us. This king confronts us to liberate us. So the king's arrival was confronting, but his mission is liberating. So let's look at this liberating mission. As we look at the liberating mission of Christ, let me just give you an example to give you a frame of reference for this. Imagine you're at work. And you make a decision, and it's a doozy. It's so detrimental, it actually, it, it causes the entire con company to begin to spiral towards, towards utter bankruptcy because of what you did. This thing is spiraling. So, they, so, so head office starts sending documents. Hey, here's 10 ways you can turn this thing around. And as much as everybody in the, in, the, in, the, in the office is trying to apply the top 10 ways to turn this thing around, nobody can actually do it. And this thing is just continually spiraling, spiraling, spiraling. And so then they start sending people from head office. Hey, I'm going to do a seminar. Here's some diagrams. Hey, maybe this will save the company. Let's put big pieces of paper on all the walls, colored markers. Do a bunch of exercises, that'll save the company. They just keep going and going and going. They keep trying to say, nobody can do it. Then all of a sudden, there's a conference call, and the owner of the company gets on the call. The owner says, calls you by name and says, I see what you did. I see the decision you made. I see the implications of the decision you made. It's clear to me you're never fixing this. So I'm coming myself to deal with it. And they hang up. What is it, what's everybody's reaction in the room? The owner is coming! We're saved! Huzzah! No, it isn't. Everybody's, everybody's thinking, this is not going to end well. And what Isaiah 52 gives us is the king, the owner, is coming into the mess that we created but in a shocking contradiction of what we actually deserve, it ends well. It ends very well for us. It's a scandalous contradiction. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Look at the language in verses 3 and 4. What we find is the king who shuts every mouth with an impossible standard of love in his law. He didn't send more law. He didn't come to be an example of how to, set, how to keep the law in order to, to achieve holiness. He came to be our holiness. 
When you look at verses 3 and 4, you get the striking language. Jesus was despised, bore griefs, stricken, smitten, afflicted. This is not a haphazard list of adjectives. Isaiah is not just not like, I just need some words. This is not a haphazard list of adjectives. This is a description. If you read through Leviticus, Numbers, Kings, Chronicles, you're going to find these words describing people who were either under God's judgment or they were sick. And in many cases, you're going to find these words like stricken and smitten and afflicted with people who had leprosy. This is not a coincidence because leprosy was a death sentence unless God intervened. And our sin is a death sentence unless God intervenes. And so we see the, condi- the human condition is described as this leprosy. The human condition, it makes us like lepers. We've got a common enemy. Whether you're here today and you are a Christian or you would consider yourself an agnostic and you're like, you're thinking about faith and that's why you're here today. Regardless of where we land, you and I, friend, we have a common enemy called death. And unless God intervenes, you and I b- were like the leper. And that's why these, adjecti- these adjectives are here. This, this language is constantly throughout um, the Old Testament text. In verse 5, it says, He was wounded and pierced for our transgressions. Transgressions are all the line crossing that you and I do because we think our ways are higher than God's ways. He was bruised and crushed for our iniquities. Iniquity, it's like the driving force. It's like the undertow under the waves that's causing us to sin. Sin is the thing that we do, but the iniquity is that driving force underneath it that makes us to do it. It says he was bruised and crushed for that. Our chastisement was upon him. Our chastisement being upon him, that means he was punished. It was like he's being punished by a parent. Do you remember having family meetings when one of your siblings did something and they're like, okay, family meeting, and you're like, why am I here? You have to sit there and endure it. You're like, I didn't even do anything. You feel so patronized. And then you grow up and you're a grown adult and you go to the office and then there's like signs everywhere like wipe out the microwave. Your mother doesn't work here. Do the dishes. And there's all these signs everywhere. It's like we're children and you're like I do my dishes. Why do I have to endure this patronizing and so embarrassing? They have a meeting at work. They bring everybody together and they have some, they're like we have to have some housekeeping and they give a speech of things around the office that should be done when you're like 10 years old but they're not being done. You got to Imagine Christ on the cross. He's done no sin. And now he's being chast- the chastisement of our peace was upon him. He's being chastised for all the dumb things that you and I have done. Like he did it. But he goes willingly in his cosmic levels of love that we can't, otherworldly grace that we can't grapple with. It says, look at the text. With his wounds we are healed. That healing language is found throughout the Old Testament. It is found throughout the Psalms. David is crying out for healing. Psalm 41, 4. Oh God, heal me. He, what healing is he after? It's not, he's not, oh God, I'm sick. Take my, away my cough, my lower back pain. Take away, take away this ailment, this disease. Oh God, heal my physical body. David's not crying out. This healing language, oh God, heal me from my sin. Our problem is not sickness and disease leading to premature death. Our problem is death. And the king didn't come to treat the symptoms. He came to deal with the root problem at the core. And, and, and notice how we get this healing. Notice how we get the healing. By his wounds, we are healed. Definitive. 
No conversation about it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Not maybe healed. Healed. Notice how we get the healing. Look at the text. God does not promise healing that you secure through your faithfulness. God promises healing that the king secures for you through his faithfulness. Look at the text. He's doing all the action. What are you and I doing? Nothing. We're, we're on the receiving end of all of his action. We're on the receiving end of all of the healing. It's astounding. The Apostle Peter took this verse and he used it in 1 Peter 2.24 and he used it to encourage the suffering scattered church. They're scattered all over the place and, and the Apostle Peter takes this verse from Isaiah and this is what he says and I quote, He himself bore our sins on his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You've been healed. Healed from what? Sin. Why? To live to righteousness. See, the gospel is good news for us because the healing for our sin is not riding on us. Our faithfulness is deeply flawed, but Christ's faithfulness is totally perfect. And so... The king comes at Christmas and it's confronting, but his mission is liberating, absolutely liberating. Christ was punished as if he were guilty so that in the end we would be rewarded as though we are innocent. Look at verse 6. In and of ourselves we're like sheep, we're scattered. In Christ we're gathered together. We're unfaithful, but he's faithful. And it goes on to say that the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. All of our sin. Every week as we receive the Lord's table here, I declare according to God's word that your sin is forgiven, past, present, future, all of it. <clears throat> now what's the motive then for obedience? What's the motive to gather every Sunday? It's a command to gather and worship and to train our children. Hey, don't go there and there and there and there and there to try and calm your little hearts and calm your little souls and deal with your anxiety and this crazy thing called life and the big scary world out there that doesn't care about you. Don't turn to all these little mini messiahs. Don't get your shiny little trinkets and worship them. Come and gather and, and rest in the goodness of the gospel and the cross. Why should we do it if all of our sin is forgiven? What's the motivation? Why should you read the scriptures and meditate on them? And why should prayer be on our homes? Why should we do any of it? I'll think about it. We have a completely different relationship with the law that has been kept by the king. You see, he's done it all. And if he didn't do it all, if he didn't accomplish it all, if it was like, well, your past sins are forgiven, but your future sins, let's wait and see. Now what's your motivation? Fear. You're afraid. Oh, your past sins are forgiven, but not the future. Let, let's see what your church attendance looks like. Let's wait and see what prayer looks like in your home. Let's just wait and see. That's what it would be. What's your motivation now? Fear. But that's not the gospel. That's the false gospel. The gospel is your sin in Jesus Christ has been forgiven. Past, present, future. Now what's your motivation? Gratitude. All my guilt, taken by his grace, what's left? Gratitude. That's why I'm here. That's why I bring my kids here. That's why we worship. That's why we pray. That's why we meditate on the scriptures. That's why we do everything. For those of you who are, uh, let me explain it this way for, for, uh, for the, 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 those that are younger here in the service today. Maybe your parents tell you, you know, you got to clean your room. Clean your room. And they, they make that a rule in the home. Why do, why do you, why do you do that? And if you're 
uh, if you've got children or if you uh, are a single person and you re reflect back to being a child. Now you're a single person and you love having your apartment, boom, the way it is, your house. Hey, all the things are where they should be. You love, this is my space. Where did that come from though? Your, your parents were putting disciplines in you. They're like, clean your room. But the reason that they told you to clean your room was because they're like, I want to instill a loving discipline that's going to cause you to flourish and be a wise benefit and guide to your life. I'm not telling you to clean your room because if you don't clean your room, we're going to go down to the court office, we're going to change your last name, and you're out of this family. You're fired as a child. That's not why you get your children to do things. You get them to do it because you're like, I need to teach you that if you leave this food under your bed, it will mutate, become sentient, bite you, be your supervillain backstory. We need to avoid this. Please clean your room. That's why you do it. There's no family earning involved. By his wounds you've been healed. End of conversation. Sin forgiven. Past, present, future. And so now all that's left, of course, is this life of great gratitude. And the Christian life is not a life of drudgery and following rules. It's a life of joy. We're not following rules. We follow a king. What is Christmas all about? The coming of the king. What is the motivating factor in our life? Our love for the king. Yes, I read the Bible. Yes, I consider it to be a guide for my life. Yes, I teach my children in our home the word of God with Susan. Susan and I do this together. Yes, we do these things. But not because we're trying to teach our children to follow rules. We're trying to teach our children to love the king. We're following a king. The king who came and with, with, with an arrival that was confronting, but with a message that was absolutely liberating. Verse 10 says, it, it, was, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he was pleased to do it. And this is not angry, divine child abuse. Jesus is God. He came as a willing sacrifice. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones, the great writer, put it, it's not the nails that kept Christ on the cross. It was his love that kept him there. And the gospel teaches us that our need was so great that God had to come and die. But yet his grace was so great, he was pleased to die. Which leads us to the third thing. After the king's confronting arrival and his liberating mission, there is an eternal rule. When you look at verse 10, it says that he will see his offering. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What does all this mean? In the Hebrew, the word prolonged his days, you could translate that Hebrew to also mean continual or perpetual. And the word prosper in the Hebrew, you could also translate it break out. Okay, that's kind of like a, just a literary raw translation of the Hebrew. In other words, the plan of God was that the king would be crushed, and after he would be crushed, he would have continual breakout prosperity. Crucifixion, resurrection. This text is predicting... This text is prophesying the resurrection after the crucifixion. And if you're here this morning, again, exploring Christian faith, I want you to hear this very carefully. In every world religion, and I say this often at Redeemer, but I, I hope this will be helpful for you to help make a distinction. In every world religion, the sage or the teacher or the prophet, the guru, is teaching a means and a, and a way to salvation. They're all essentially teaching, do this and you'll be saved. Okay, the last words of Buddha, they translated from Pali to, to say, Behold, O monks, this is my last advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. 
work hard to gain your own salvation. Buddha's last words were, work hard to gain your salvation, because in Buddhism, the goal is to save yourself from constant rebirth. You're trying to get out of the cycle of rebirth and be absorbed into the Brahma. So in the end of Buddhism, it's not really you, you're just part of the ethereal universe. In Hinduism, you are living this life of right conduct and righteousness, moral law and duty. The goal is the reunification of the soul with the Brahman. Again, it's, you know, you're, you're trying to live a good and loving, you know, caring life. In Islam, Muhammad declared himself to be the prophet. The goal of Islam is to keep the Quran so that in the end, your good deeds outweigh your bad ones. And I've talked with Muslims and had conversations around this and they'll, tell, they'll explain it to me that way. You see, every world religion can be distilled down to the word behave. Christianity can be distilled down to the word behold. The message of Christmas, the message of Christianity, the crux of our faith, why we get up in the morning, is not behave, it's behold. And when the gospel of the radicality of Christ's grace grips your heart, and you behold it, the renewal, the power of the Spirit in your heart, it does the renewing and transforming work, and the behaving of the Christian flows from the beholding. And so the message that we get from this text is that we relate to Jesus not primarily as our example, but primarily as our Savior. And as we relate to him as our Savior, we very much desire his example. And we very much desire to live in an imitation of his example. Jesus was both actively and passively obedient. His act of obedience was his perfect loving life. And his passive obedience was his perfect atoning death. Taking everything that you and I deserved, everything that this text predicts. Verse 11 says, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Christ's humiliation ended in glorification. And the good news of the promise of the gospel is that in the end for you and I, our humiliation also ends in glorification. What's the end of the story of your life? Being lowered down into a dark hole? Is that how it all ends? If Christ did not rise, that's how it all ends. But Christ did rise. And so look at this verse, verse 11. He will see the light in life and be satisfied. That's true of Christ by his nature, and that is now true of you and I because of his grace. We will see the light in life and be satisfied. And that brings light in life to our life today, even the here and now. And the challenge of, of the paradox that is this world is the challenges of our lives. The king in the manger is a good image, but it's not a tame image. It's an epic and life-changing truth. His arrival is confronting, but his mission is liberating. And his rule over you and I, church, it's ongoing. And if it pleased Jesus to come and be crushed and give himself as a will, willing sacrifice to save you, when you were dead in your sin, he will not abandon you when you fall back into your sin. When you stumble into sin. If it pleased him to come and to be crushed and to give himself as a willing sacrifice to save you when you were dead in your sin, how much not more will his grace abound for you in those difficult days when you stumble and fall into sin? 
May you enjoy the rest of God's grace deeply. And may you be renewed by this word continually. And may your lives be animated by God's spirit increasingly as you live to the glory of your king, you and your children. Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, church, we are healed. Amen.